Welcome to the MIT Horizon Podcast, the platform educating professionals to emerging technologies, featuring latest developments from MIT and beyond. Today we're going to discuss fundamentals of blockchain technology with Anders Brownworth. Anders taught the first blockchain class at MIT, and he's worked in the blockchain industry at Circle for the past five years. Brownworth is an expert in cold storage technologies and helped create the USDC stablecoin. He is a subject matter expert on blockchain technology for MIT Horizon, and he's educated lawmakers, regulators, and law enforcement on what the technology presents. He regularly guest lectures at MIT and Yale on the topic. Before we talk about the future of this technology, let's define what it is. What are we talking about here? Yeah, I think it uh, makes a lot of sense to talk about this technology in terms of what it's useful for. It uh, really helps. That's very much like just a database that that you know we've lived with for 30, 40 years already. But uh, it's worse on a number of vectors, so that it can be better on one. So it's it's worse in terms of uh, efficiency. Uh, everybody keeps a copy of everything and saves it forever. Uh, it's worse in in terms of how long a transaction or or a record in that database takes to become finalized, uh, sort of worse on a lot of vectors, save for one. And the one is the fact that you don't have to trust a single centralized player for an accurate record of what happened or what's in the database. Uh, that responsibility is distributed across all the entities in the network. And if you trust them all together, they will come up with the right answer and all agree upon it. Do we have a sense as to when it really started to take shape? I mean, most of us know about Bitcoin and the, the rise of cryptocurrency. Is that when it really started to take shape? Yes, that's that's exactly right. So a little bit more than 10 years ago, a person or persons or right. uh, whomever that is uh, named Satoshi Nakamoto uh, put out the Bitcoin white paper and then very quickly followed it up with actual working code. And that was the first implementation of a blockchain uh, that works uh, in the public uh, and, uh, you know, kind of solved the the uh, game theory problem of trying to make this thing work. But it's gone beyond that in terms of the usage in the financial world. Just lay out what kinds of applications it has in finance these days. Sure. In finance, we've got sort of 10 years of history of, of actual you know, uh, working products that have that have uh, uh, come to the fore. We're not that's that's not the case, maybe, of some of the other use cases, which we can touch on. Mm -hmm. uh, but definitely financial use cases is, is the number one use case uh, that started out, as you mentioned, with Bitcoin, very much just a, uh, you know, here is an asset as a store of value, a unit of account, uh, you know, something used for exchange. Uh, and, and that's it, really not, no more smarts than that. Um, more recently, other uh, blockchains have, you know, been, been put into existence that have some other features. And you might have heard the uh, sort of the buzzword uh, smart contracts. And smart contracts are essentially tiny little computer programs that can be run uh, when one of these transactions happens. So let me give you an example. Uh, let's say I want to give my son some amount of money when he turns 18 or when I die. Uh, I don't have to trust an attorney or a single centralized player 
to execute that code. It's just going to sit there on the blockchain and either going to find out that, that you know, it knows what his birthday is, so it's going to figure out when he's 18, or it use, consults some kind of an oracle and figures out that I've died and uh, does the disbursement. So those kinds of uh, structures uh, exist. There are interesting mm -hmm. implementations of escrow and lots of other things. Uh, so, well. th so the question that a lot of people might have is, how secure is it? How yeah. safe is it? How private can it be if you're trading information that's very important like that? Yeah, that's an, a complex question. And to unpack that, uh, there is the uh, basic uh, piece of security where you uh, want to make sure that nobody else can spend the funds that you have. Mm -hmm. You can actually hold your own funds. I would argue most people in the long run probably won't hold their own funds. They'll trust uh, other players to do that the way people trust banks now, but you can own and hold your own funds. In that case, security is literally remembering a private key, which is a random number, never forgetting it, and uh, being able to use it at a moment's notice, but never telling it to anybody. That's mm -hmm. kind of a hard problem to do. Um, there are other implementations of security, like you know, how sure can I be that somebody else hasn't just created a hundred million dollars out of thin air mm -hmm. and dropped it into their account. Uh, well, I, again, I'm, I'm going to rely on this trust uh, factor that uh, the blockchain has given me, which allows me to, uh, you know, come to consensus across a number of people, a number of peers in this network. And if they all are checking everything and watching everything and, and they independently agree, that somebody hasn't created a hundred million dollars out of nowhere, uh, then then it is secure. And uh, the the case in point here would be um, if you look at the total ecosystem value, let's say of uh, Bitcoin, and let's say at this point, you know, about one hundred and fifty billion dollars. So you can think of that as a uh, sort of a, a honeypot uh, that's sitting there, mm -hmm. and with all of the people in the world operating for the last 10 years, nobody's been able to go grab that pot. So it gives you somewhat of a, some confidence that this actually is a secure system. So it sounds to me like it's self-regulating, that the, the members, I'm going to use that in quote, they're the ones, the, the fellow blockchain people are the ones protecting it for everybody else. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's done in code. So mm -hmm. all of the members or the peers are just running a computer program on their computer, and uh, it is operating amongst a, a set of rules. You know, basic rules we can all agree on. You can't in invent money out of thin air. You can't take the same dollar and spend it to multiple people at the mm. same time, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, stuff you would just, uh, you know, kind of want in a currency, mm. basically to enforce scarcity. Uh, so these rules are encoded in the software that you run, and other people run their software as well. And if they all agree, if the rule sets are the same, then we come to consensus about who owns how much of what. And it moves forward. Uh, are there any operating systems needed? The companies listening to this podcast, people in, in positions to make decisions, do they need to incorporate new hardware to make this work? In the case of uh, somebody just using the network, being able to send and receive digital assets, uh, the answer is no. The, the, the software exists and, and has been compiled for pretty much everything that's out there. Um, it's going to be very flexible from that perspective. However, 
if you want to operate in this, uh, uh, you know, network and be a miner in, in, for example, a proof of work blockchain such as Bitcoin, uh, you would lose money if you use standard off-the-shelf computers to try to mine and, and you know, generate currency. Um, instead, you would have to make a rather sizable investment in specialized hardware. But I would argue, you know, this really being done on an industrial scale by a group of actors that, uh, you know, are, are very sophisticated at that point, and most people are not going to want to get involved in that. Would you mind explaining some of the terms of art, including mining? I mean, you mentioned it and you sort of des described it, but a little more depth. Absolutely. Yeah, so mining is the process of uh, selecting transactions that want to be completed. People have posed these transactions out there and uh, doing some math on them, which turns out to be a very nonsensical thing. It really doesn't, you know, it's just a kind of an arbitrarily complex puzzle that they are trying to solve. And all of these computers compete to find the answer. And randomly, you know, seemingly randomly, one of them is going to come up with an answer before anyone else. Mm -hmm. And statistically, uh, that just gets spread across all the players uh, in, in such a way that, uh, you know, so they are they are putting in a lot of electricity, kind of, you know, they're putting a lot of work into the system. And then uh, the output of that work is my transactions get kind of like a seal of approval. Uh, and they are, they are, you know, a block is added to the blockchain uh, by a miner. Uh, and it's really just a collection of transactions. And importantly, it is an order of transactions. We're doing a time order of transactions with a blockchain. Does this exist in what we now know as the cloud? Or is it a separate platform somewhere else besides the cloud? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, so the, this can be run uh, on cloud infrastructure, okay. typically running peers, so not miners. Uh, peers can be run in the cloud. You can run them on standard computer hardware that you have at home. Uh, these systems tend to be designed to be operated within a, uh, you know, you could run it on standard uh computer hardware mm -hmm. at your home with a standard internet connection, nothing crazy. Right. Anders, we started off our discussion here today with you mentioning that it might be a somewhat overhyped blockchain. Before we sort of investigate that, let's talk a little bit about uh, the kinds of companies, and I was reading percentages, it's not very high in terms of the numbers of companies, it's I think below 10% worldwide. But what kinds of companies are benefiting, are really getting a lot out of this? Who's using this now? The killer use case right now is exchange uh, in, in the financial context. So I have one asset in one format, and I want to exchange it for some other asset in some other format. Now, very basically, that can be I have a dollar and I want to buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also mean moving from you know some esoteric you know, ICO coin to something else. I mean, it, 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 that's really where the use case is right now. Um, that has a bit of speculative, uh, a speculative side to it in a sense. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the promise of this technology uh, long term is to really break out of the financial use case and be used in, in other areas. Um, however, to have a public blockchain 
you there there does need to be some kind of incentive to have that chain uh, continuously mined. So there's right. probably going to be a financial use case in most of these. Okay, things. so let's talk about where we see this going in terms of other industries. Say, for instance, healthcare or um, education. I mean, what what do you see as the near future for blockchain? Yeah, the technology, uh, as I mentioned, is uh, slower, uh, less efficient, et cetera. It's, you know, most of the solutions out there uh, are going to be, or most of the problems out there are going to have solutions in kind of existing technology. Um, there's only very a very narrow set of problems that fit this technology. And generally, if you think about a blockchain, this is a... Uh, a brand new uh, trust layer of the internet. So any any project that you're working on that requires distributed trust, this this you might want to investigate this technology. And to dive into that a little bit more, um, I'll just use uh, a use case of uh, voting. Okay? okay. So you've got uh, a bunch of people that are going to be voting in an election. They all collectively have a desire and a need to know who won, uh, to know who actually won, not who, you know, uh, you know, was able to like, you know, break the vo the votes or something, right? You, everybody wants to know who actually won this election. However, if you ask any one person, you would have to trust them or one entity, you have to trust them that what they are saying is correct. So in this case. Uh, it makes sense to use a less efficient technology to use something that, you know, just kind of bad or worse on all of the other dimensions because it has this very valuable trust dimension. We can trust that if I've committed all of these votes to the chain and I ask the chain to tell me who has now won the election, I get a uh, an answer that has cryptographic assurance uh, that it is correct, and I can check it. So it's a community of sorts, a, a yeah. community of trust that has to be there for it to work. Right, right. And so the the sort of the missing word that's that I haven't said yet is governance. Ah. Right. right. So the, so uh, yes, we are uh, dealing in a trust, uh, you know, value here. And the governance of that trust is it's generally governed by code, but people write code and people can change code and people can decide to run certain versions or not or whatever. So there is this while, while everything on a chain is really just written in code, it really comes down to the people that actually want to run it. Uh, to select what code they want to run, et cetera. So ultimately, the top level of all of this is a governance system. Um, you know, how, how are changes made? You can't, you're not going to roll something out that's going to be perfect for the next 100 years. Not going to mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're going to want some way to be able to iterate on uh, code that's out there. And, and this is where this technology has been contentious around how we should change, how we come to agreement on what we should change and things like that. Now, you teach people uh, here at MIT and elsewhere uh, about this. 
It, what's the learning curve like on this? Is it the kind of thing that if you've been in the field of IT or, or just in general, you've grown up with this stuff, is it, does it come relatively easy? I mean, where do you see it? So this technology is bizarre. It, <laughs> okay. it, it comes, out, it is a, something brand new in computer science. This trust layer of the internet yeah. is brand new in computer science, did not exist slightly more than 10 years ago. Um, it, it didn't exist earlier because it's not purely a computer science uh, solution. It requires an understanding of markets, an understanding of human greed, an understanding of game theory, like lots of different things that are sort of outside of the, the computer science uh, uh, you know, bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, if you combine those things, and, and literally this is not really breaking any new ground of some brand new technology, it's really combining a lot of ideas that existed before and and doing them in such a doing that in such a way that this all works together so bringing somebody up to speed on this technology while it seems bizarre and uh does things that are are kind of way off the reservation like you wouldn't normally think of this as a solution to to a, a, a problem but if combined in a certain way you know, you, you come to it relatively quickly. It doesn't really require a deep uh, a technical understanding of exactly how cryptography works, although that is very valuable. Um, it really demands of the, of the, you know, general learner, I'm not talking about somebody with a computer science background, but for the general learner, you, you can get the seat of the pants feel for what these different cryptographic techniques present and make available. And then you can see how those things are combined in, an, in a curious way and, uh, you know, made to work amongst standard humans, you know, in a system where greed exists uh, to create something that's brand new. We've never had this layer of trust before on the internet. It's never been a building block. Mm. And now we all have it which creates some very exciting things you can you can do with it. But like understanding it, right. I think, is very possible. And for those listening, wondering, hey, what does the future look like 5, 10, 20 years from now? I mean, it's probably a, a task and a half to try to figure that out. But with the speed of technology and advancement, where do you see this going? Very difficult to say, of course. Right. But I would argue that value will be moved around the world in this way because it's better on a lot of dimensions. Um, I, I would think that we've, we've seen 10 years of financial use case. I look forward to the point where we can look back on 10 years of, of you know, all of these other use cases, mm. Internet of Things, uh, you know, sort of supply chain management, these different areas that sort of do fit that, that curious box of where, where trust is required. So I think we'll see that, but I, I, I am skeptical of uh, a you know an entire chain that is built to solve one of these problems only. I I tend to see it a little bit more as there are a set of public chains that exist, and uh, they get used and combined in interesting ways to supply additional yeah. capabilities. So uh, you know you're not going to see a chain for voting 
that is only for voting. Mm. It's going to be used for a lot of things. And because they can all rely on a single centralized, not centralized, a single distributed chain of trust, uh, then they all kind of benefit across each other. So ultimately down the road, uh, I, I think of this really as the coordinating layer mm. of uh, things that are done on the internet. And based on this suggestion of trust and and community and people working together, quote unquote, is it doomsday proof? In other words, are we are we at all at risk of nefarious characters doing things with this that people have tried to do with the internet? Yes, we yes, there are are a wide array of of disaster scenarios that could happen, and there is no absolute ironclad assurance for the the uh, the future. Um, however, we have a lot of people, a lot of very smart people focused on this right now, and they are aware of things that, that are kind of coming down the pike. One of them that you would kind of naturally look at is quantum computing. Uh, there's some very interesting things that uh, there's actually a whole branch of computer science really uh, dedicated to uh, cre recreating the cryptographic primitives in a quantum computing universe uh, to allow, uh, you know, all of the same assurances that we have with the existing classical computing uh, paradigm to work with uh, blockchains going, going forward. Artificial intelligence part of this possibility? Yeah, I don't see that as directly yet, but mm -hmm. maybe long term that that plays a lot, a lot bigger. Right now, um, most of these uh, most of these decisions and, and whatnot are, are being done by uh, people. Right. Finally, you having fun with this? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I can't think of a more interesting space to be in. It's we're we're in preseason at best. There, there are trillions and trillions of dollars flowing around the world. Mm. Uh, even if you just narrow it to the use case of uh, finance, it's extraordinarily exciting. Um, I, I see a future where, you know, you'll, you'll, you may not use it directly, but you will rely on this trust layer for virtually everything you do online. Uh, so I, I don't think it's overstating to say this is at least as important as the web uh, was to the Internet. Well, we're glad you're where you are teaching and learning and developing new ideas in this area. Thank you so much, Anders, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the MIT Horizon podcast on the fundamentals of blockchain technology. If you'd like to, you can refer to the podcast notes where you'll find a summary of our conversation with Anders, as well as links to his video demo and websites. The full transcription of today's podcast is available on the MIT Horizon platform. Join us next week for our next episode.